Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, it's been uh, two weeks now, I guess, since my last podcast, but my guess is that you've been as busy as I've been lately and that you probably wouldn't have had time to listen to another podcast anyway. How's that for rationalization, huh? (laughs) But there are some fellow saloners who found the time to make a donation to the salon, and so I want to thank Matthew N., Carl R., and Andy H. for their generous donations. And I also want to correct a thank you from my last podcast in which I mispronounced one of our donors' names. And that kind soul is Jared S., who I mistakenly called Jarrett. Sorry about that, Jared. And uh, thank you, Matthew, Carl, and Andy, for your continuing support. And speaking of support, today's program once again features Bruce Damer, whose development team at DigitalSpace.com created the virtual reality training simulations that the NASA crew used to train for the recently completed Hubble Telescope repair mission. And if you go to digitalspace.com, you'll see a link on the front page to the spacewalk simulation, and you can go through some of the training yourself. And I might add that if you are a VR developer yourself, well, that site is also where you can download Digital Space's DSS, which uh, is the open source 3D platform that Bruce and company uh, built to use in developing this application. And since it's open source, you can also use it for free. So thank you, Bruce and friends. Anyway, when the Hubble mission flooded the news this week, I somehow remembered a couple of Bruce Damer's talks that may be of interest to you. The first talk I want to play is uh, one that Bruce gave in 2004. And in it, there were several stretches where he showed a short video. And I had to cut those out because without the images to go along with Bruce's commentary, it just didn't work very well. Which means that uh, this talk isn't as long as it was in its original form, but I think there is an important message here, uh, particularly for any of our fellow saloners who might be feeling a little bit overwhelmed and stressed out with information overload. So I'm going to play that right now, and then I've got another short conversation with Bruce that I'd like to play for you. But right now, here is the second talk that Bruce Damer gave at the Mind States Conference that was held in Oaxaca, Mexico, during the month of September 2004. What we're going to do is that the subject of this talk is really very close to the work that Galen and I do and that the company, uh, we have 16 people in our company and we're kind of a ragtag group, work around the world and we do a lot of projects and the projects are all out of the edge of cognition. Um, We seem to be getting hired all the time to do work uh, at the boundaries of the ability of the human mind to, to function. Uh, and extending those boundaries. And, uh, for example, uh, one of the boundaries is uh, well, what type of human mind? One of the, one of the pr- scary properties of modern life is um, something known as kind of cognitive overload. And you probably, all of you probably experienced with it. This is one too many emails, one too many calls from your teenage kid that's in trouble again, and one, one too many harassing comments by boss or something, and your brain gets to this sort of mush phase. And uh, this is a, a property that pretty, was pretty rare in, in primate development and primate history to, to reach that phase. In fact, if you go to forests in Africa, you, you find that uh, the smart primates uh, didn't, didn't get cell phones or in the forest. Uh, they, they stuff themselves on something and then they lie around for two days. You know, bonobos and, you know, who's really smart here? Anyway, so primates spend a lot of time in their history sort of lying around and recuperating and picking, getting getting, uh, uh, extra protein by finding bugs and insects on each other and things like that. And so, um, in a sense, we're in a weird state. Uh, All of humanity is in this bizarre bizarre state uh, where we're subjecting our cognitive processes to things that uh, that um, 
Guys, I can't talk if you're talking. Thanks. Uh, see what I mean? <laughs> anyway, uh, we're in a very we, we're we're subjecting ourselves to something that hasn't been hasn't happened to our species ever before, which is pushing our our limit, uh, our, our our brain's capacity to the limit and beyond. And there's, you know, one would think, oh, that's a great thing, you know, expand your consciousness and be able to do more email, you know, and the more instant messaging and more texting. But there's a huge uh, social societal price we're going to pay for this. And I think uh, most, you know, with due respect to most academics, people who research, they're about five to ten years behind current trends. So by the time we start to study this stuff, it'll be endemic throughout society. Uh, back at the farm, and if you're ever in Northern California, please come and visit us. I have a barn, we have a barn, and it's full of 600 vintage computers. And uh, they all work. And they're from 1973, and it's, it documents the history of the beginnings of personal computing and digital community networks, whatever, everything. Everything crazy for computers and Altairs and Altos and all of it, you know, from the various garages in Silicon Valley. And it's to document the invention and the culture that came out from the personal computer and then the network. And, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, you can go and look back then and you can say, oh, it's 1979 and the only people in the world who were sitting in front of a computer with a graphical display and doing email were people at Xerox Park and a few other places. And they were living in that future. And you go back and talk to them and they kind of invented that lifestyle. And they never thought that a billion people would be doing that. Maybe two billion people on cell phones doing that in, in a similar interface that they invented. They couldn't have conceived of it. So, what all of this is, is, is coming to is a sort of a giant unplanned experiment that you're all part of. And uh, what I'd like to do is to show you two snippets of work that we do at the company. Uh, the first one, I'll just explain this before you start it. No, no, this, no, let it go. This is astronaut training visualization for. Johnson Space Center. So I'll let these guys talk a little bit. What they're doing is they're training for one of the most dangerous and important missions in NASA's history coming up in the spring to replace a giant 600-pound gyro, gyro part that has gone bad on the station. If they can't replace it, the station could be, end up with no ability to control its attitude and move itself around. And so it's the, these guys have been training for a couple of years, or you know, a year and a half, in the swimming pool in Houston called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. And these guys, there's one guy who's, whose feet are on this robot arm, and he's, he's just bringing down the broken gyro to the guy who's now going to attach it to something on the shuttle cargo bay. Then they, get, then they have to go over and unscrew the, 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 the replacement gyro and stick it on the station, cable it up, spin it up, and see if it works. They don't know what caused the broken gyro to grind to a halt. It was grinding and vibrating for 24 hours before it failed. And so basically, uh, these guys are in a highly challenged cognitive environment. They have six or seven voice channels into their suit. They have six degrees of freedom. They're moving. They have so many things can go wrong. The sun is rising and setting, and they're doing this procedure for 11 hours. It's like 11-hour brain surgery. And what happens on spacewalks like this is, uh, and we, we do a 3D reconstruction from the swimming pool training in order so that they can sit in front of a computer and see it from another perspective, and put themselves on the make themselves into the gyro. What is the gyro seeing as I'm moving? When does the sun rise and set? Because when the sun rises, it blinds you. So if you're in the middle of undoing a fastener or something, you can't see something. Um, so it's, it's a, these guys t tend to get cognitively overloaded and they get brain fuzzy after about three hours if they're intensely communicating or whatever. Maybe if they're 13 years old, they could do the whole procedure <laughs> straight through. But these guys are in their 40s and 50s. And so their thresholds are getting lower and lower and lower. Um, Giving an example, the near space station which was almost lost uh, when the uh, Progress supply ship was coming out. You remember this? And it slammed into the station and it bounced off a module. And the module was seal was breached and it started to be depressurized. Well, the commander of, said, you know, 
I looked up at the monitor, and there it was, and then I looked back, and it was gone. It wasn't there, because he was seeing it come in, and it was an automatic docking of this. And what he, he was in a total cognitive overload. He was in total fatigue, and he blacked out. His brain just, he's, he went into a stasis for about 10 seconds, a critical 10 seconds. He was overloaded, brain stopped working. Blacked out, unconscious of it, but still sitting there, came back, and then the ship was, you know, they were in the middle of an emergency. So that's exactly what, where human beings can, can go. If, if our technology around us and our social demands that's the, the condition that you can put somebody in. So it's absolutely not his fault. I mean, of course, it's like, Valentin, why did you, why did you do this? And like, I, I don't know how to answer that. Because they had driven him so hard that he stopped functioning. He broke as a part. And every one of you in your offices at work or whatever, um, you're, you're kind of getting up to that threshold now and then. And maybe going into that threshold. And... Uh, one of the things I was so fascinated by this because we work in the in the area of trying to help people deal with this was uh, what causes that cognitive overload and what what in, in a very simple model of the brain and then we we're reading an article by Damasio some of his new work uh, who many of you know is a brain researcher and uh, he wrote this article it's like a total revelation to me it's kind of like Alan's talk yesterday morning was a big revelation to me on where did my creativity go? <laughs> you know, well, I'm writing federal contracts, that's why it's not. That little valve is completely stuck open and nothing's going through the creativity side anymore. But, um, except these talks, perhaps. Uh, Demacio seems to be showing, and this is something, we have friends in a clinical, uh, clinical acupuncture practice in New York City. And they kept telling us, and his name is uh, Mark and Warner Seen, and Mark wrote, probably was responsible more than anybody else bringing Chinese acupuncture to the US and writing about it and westernizing it. And he said, you know, the, our practice, we're starting to get all these people who are, whose adrenal systems are shot, who, who come in and the only thing that they can get is a, a nervous system reboot. So we give them you know, pretty deep acupuncture, try to restart them. And a lot of them, it turns out, a lot of Orthodox Jews, including rabbis and whatnot, who are so wired and stressed out that it's, they've, they've all gone into to go to acupuncture. And I started reading up about this, and it turns out that there's this whole booming field of, 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 of clinical diagnosis of something called adrenal uh, exhaustion, uh, where people are, uh, are tripped out on interrupts. And so, for instance, they come in the morning, and you know what I'm talking about, and they start getting an email, and they go, great, that feels great, emails come in, I exist, therefore I get an email, therefore I exist, etc., etc., and there's a stimulus response, Pavlov's dog, right, this, that I exist, I exist, and what is happening is their eyes are darting around on the screen, and they're sitting totally still, and their eyes are darting around, now they're in rapid eye movement, and little those darting of the eyes are driving the adrenal system to pump out all the adrenaline. Because when you're, if you're a primate in the wild and there's a cheetah stalking, you're doing like this. And you're, that is driving your adrenal system to get ready to run. If something is out there. Now if you're sitting in an office doing this, you're getting a wonderful high, but your body's not moving. It's all piling up in your body. And, and you hit a crash, like 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you dump. So where do you go? You go to Starbucks, you know, or somebody brings you coffee to pump it up again. And the, this continual cycle, then, you, then you're in traffic on the way home and nothing seems real. You know, it's like nothing seems real. And you don't know what's happening to you. You go home, you have a fight with your spouse, but you don't even remember the fight because you, nothing seems real. What's happening? Well, you're not really feeling much. Now, Damasio is powering all this research onto this area. And there, what he's finding is that, the, or what he's claiming is that there's sort of a two-speed brain. One, one part of your brain is the millisecond responsive cognitive part of the brain. Just bang, bang, hey, I got that email back, go oh, fast, and I can handle all this stuff, I can text like this, and 
you know, and, and your brain is like has a hunger for this stuff, this cognitive rapid response stuff, and if you're proud, and it can just do things so quickly. And then there's another part of the brain that does the emotional processing. And it turns out that the access to either store an emotional sense or retrieve it and, and use it is very slow. It's like seconds or even minutes. The cognitive part is like bam, bam. Now we're probably evolved to be that way. You know, we're sitting around in our, our primate community and, and somebody hits somebody else and everyone goes, oh, you know, then they have to digest that. But if suddenly a troop of monkeys appears and a scout appears and they're going to steal all the food and start hammering you, and they each have to do something, boom, they're, they're reacting. Like, quickly, you go over there. You, you know, so that the two functions that we had to, had to supply uh, to, to survive. So what Damasio is, is showing is that people who, in the lab, who get a huge amount of cognitive stimulus all the time, start to have no access to the emotional part at all. They can't store to it, and they can't retrieve from it. They become what he calls emotionally neutral. Now, the, 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 it's a very, that's a very innocuous term, but it's a very scary, uh, 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 a scary result. Because if you become emotionally neutral, and you're driving home in your big SUV, and you run over somebody, you'll just keep driving. If you're head of a company, right, and it's like you're so you're frazzled and you're, you you have no connection to your emotions, and it's like we need to lay off ten thousand people, you just I'll do it, you know, like that satisfies my cognitive need to get a better result for the analysts who are hammering me, and I'm just a numbers guy anyway. Let those ten thousand people go, no emotional connections. If you're a president of a country, and it's like let's saturation bomb this area, yeah, let's do it. We see it on the screen and we see it. Yeah, see that blob of blue stuff? Well, that'll all be red stuff, and it'll be okay. No emotional connection. Big danger for humanity here. Now, of course, um, uh, there's another interesting on, on, on the spectrum, and uh, Gail will run this next uh, piece to sort of dive, diverging back to the other part of our work. What if you're a little kid, and what if you uh, have autism? <laughs> Let's actually show you this game. And what if you don't even understand what a street is, or what a street crossing is? What if a room like this full of people like you would put you into immediate overload where you freeze? What if a house that you're, you're sitting in is on fire and starts to burn down and you freeze because the flames and smoke are too much information? Uh, a child with autism often reaches this cognitive overload threshold like that, just bang. But what was discovered by Dorothy Strickland uh, a few years back, uh, and uh, uh, several other people we've worked with her, Gail's worked with her for years, is that these kids in a computer game like this, they'll fix it. This is a, this is a perfect world for them. They'll look at this dog buddy's face, they'll follow the instructions, they'll listen to the voice and the songs, and they'll move around in a world, and they're profoundly autistic, and they'll use the cursor keys, and they'll learn things. And because an autistic child is not necessarily low IQ, they'll also try to break the game and trick the game. But here we have buddies saying, come on, let's follow me, I'm going to show you how to cross the street. And Gail's not playing this, but behind it, this is a soundtrack of continual stimulating sound that many of you heard when, when you came in. So you get the idea, and these children sit down in front of these, sit down in front of these games, and they they build a mental model of the world that you're going to have to you're going to have to yeah, push the mute button and they build a mental model of the world because for them being in front of a, of a computer screen isn't necessarily a big cognitive stimulation they're going to do a thousand instant messages for them it's a way to understand the world so as with any powerful tool this digital technology and immersive virtual worlds, which are like drug trips, let's face it, and they, they do immerse people. There's a, a, it's a huge, I call it a double-edged broadsword. It's so powerful it can cut your head off, or you could use it to go across a creek, practically. Um, the, the environment, this environment is so powerful. Because unlike virtual, unlike just instant messaging and, and, and telephones, you're totally uh, visually enveloped in, the, in these environments. 
even if it's just on a small computer screen. So she's looking left, right, and left to uh, she. Good job. And now she's now she can cross, and they're gonna they're gonna cross. So if she tries to go outside the lines, it'll throw her right back onto the sidewalk in kind of a nice way. Never run into the road. Now you still have to look left, right, and left. So these kids will go through this game hundreds of times. They'll, they'll initially try to break it, and then they'll try to do it. They'll actually try to make it, and then they get rewards at the end. There's the reward. So whether it's an astronaut who's who's trying to uh, keep from making such an incredible mistake on orbit that like slamming a control moment gyro against the U.S. lab, which would be not only a big embarrassment and a career terminator for them, <laughs> but it would cause other things, um, people be killed and things like that. But they're also trying to, uh, you know, the, we're trying to help these uh, autistic kids get overwhelmed with data to build models and actually function in the first place in the world. And I think it would be interesting to show you, you have to turn the sound back up a bit. Um, one of the things that people keep mentioning here is they keep mentioning Burning Man. And truthfully, you know, I mean, Larry Hardy talks about regional burns and models for changing all of humanity. But to, to my mind, Burning Man is like 80% about people trying to come to a place where they reconnect with the emotional part of themselves, the creative part of themselves, because they're so suffering and they're so desiccated in the outside world and their jobs. Uh, from, from that, and they need to come to a place that maybe isn't acupuncture that does a nervous system reboot, but they need a place to to get sane again or try to find their way back to where they thought they were when they were humans. And that that's really what Burning Man is about, and maybe Burning Man, uh, and if they can take some of that back, some of that rebalancing back into their lives, they can affect the world. But unfortunately, I think Burning Man is a symptom of the disease. It's not necessarily a you know, if the whole planet was burning, man, of course, we need, you know, thousands of wall more Walmarts to supply these people because there's no ability. If burning man was half a million people and actually was in the entire Black Rock Desert, it would be one of the most egregiously consuming <laughs> entities and leave the mountains of trash you can't imagine because it's just an unsustainable community. Uh, but it's a tremendous place to, to try to walk back to becoming a human being again. <coughs> And this year, uh, we found that there was very little art on the playa, and I think that's possibly due to the, the, the funding regime now that exists for art projects, which uh, being in the federal procurement system, what you're starting to see is people competing for uh, dollars uh, to get their art out there. And you know, if you build a big piece, you get more, you know, how do they measure it? And it's, it's not that they're, they're burning up their own capital, their own cells are actually getting funded to do things. Of course, things are good that they're doing, but there's conspicuously absence, like 90% absence of our uh, large pieces. Strange. And uh, the man was very underwhelming in terms of, a, of its structure. Um, it was a good theme, but the temple, uh, David Best's temple, we saw a couple pictures of yesterday, was tremendous. Uh, it was possibly the best one yet, I think. Um, so, in a sense, uh, uh, me, Burning Man, is, is us trying sort of well-off nerds from the Western Hemisphere or Western world trying to reconnect with something that's very old. And Terence talked about sort of new, what did he call it, new primitive or new tribal. And that's kind of a, a theme as you can sort of grow from that. But uh, in a sense, uh, uh, as humanity is really being stretched here, and it's almost as if a certain proportion of humanity becomes fully emotionally neutral. It's like every vision of every science fiction cyberpunk come true because you've got, uh, you know, there would be Neuromancer jacked into the metaverse or, uh, you know, Orwell's 1984 and people are just sort of drones. Uh, and there's no emotional life. And that can be achieved through this giant cognitive driving factor. Uh, and you can probably sense it in, in your cells. And I think it, it, it not only, if you, if you don't have access to the emotional part, the emotional mechanism, you can't, uh, you can't be creating. I really believe that. 
Uh, one of the things that Damasio gives as an example of this is he says, if you are in a state of emotional neutrality, and you call someone on the phone, and you, you're going to ask them for a favor, and they start to say, you know, I'm having a terrible day, blah, 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 and this is what's happened to me, and whatever. Um, a person who's kind of present, what they do, what he, what he, what he claims people do is they do simulations. You become that person just for an instant. You simulate them in your own body, in your own emotional state of mind. And then you have what's called an intuitive flash about whether you should ask them for that favor now or not. So if you don't, if you don't have the doors open and you can't simulate, i.e. you have no empathy for other people, you, you can't simulate, you have no intuition. And you have no intuition, but social intuition. And you're becoming, actually, you're becoming, uh, you're joining uh, the continuum of, of autism uh, in some sense, because you, everything is going to be about data and driving your goals and whatever. You're kind of a, a cognitive autism, autist uh, at that point. And you, you'll just talk right over top of people. You don't hear what people are saying. And, you know, talk about being difficult to raise a family, being difficult just to function. Um, and in a sense, people who are also over-mediated, who are not only in this cognitively overstimulated state where they're losing emotional connection, but they're watching so much TV, and the TV and the reality TV is becoming their lives. They're using reality-based TV to create temporary simulations in themselves so that they feel something. Like, is she going to get the guy, or, you know, is they going to get, you know, it's like, yeah. Is Trump going to hire them? And they feel all wrapped up in it, but it's being substituted for their own ability to do that. Because we're story machines, and if we have a story being told, we're willing to throw away our complete person and, and adopt that story. But when the story's over and the TV's off after six or eight hours a day or whatever, you're left pretty empty from that experience. So it's, it's, what's interesting is you know, this conference is about mind states, but I think what you could do is uh, look at the mind states out there that everybody's in. They're in an altered mind state. You know, what is a non-altered mind state? But I, I think that you could say that a, a hunking big proportion of, of society is in an altered mind state that actually could be clinically diagnosable. And they're, they're popping Xanax or whatever they're popping, Prozac. I mean, they're medicating themselves, they're mediating themselves, and trying to keep their sense that, am I still here, kind of thing. So everybody's in a mind state that may be, uh, and in a sense, we talk about saving the planet and whatnot, you can't even start to think about it until you solve this problem. Now, of course, the, the thing that can alter the mind state is, well, maybe even not. If there's an incoming asteroid, people would not really connect with that emotionally. Like, okay, you know, don't see it now. You know, maybe it's just a TV show. You know, would that way people... Would, would housing price crash and half the country be out on the street in foreclosures and bank failures? And that way people thought it might. Um, would it be global climate change? I mean, just physical discomfort for primates would probably wake them up. Uh, what you tend to find, and this is also in Damasio's work, is that a person has become emotionally neutral and they're just motoring along on their cognitive stimulation. When they have an accident or something, when a loved one dies, there's, they have no buffer. It tends to either they don't know, they have no connection with it, and the family members can't understand, or they plunge head, headlong into a complete breakdown. Because now they're overwhelmed with something in front of them that is undeniable. Now they're, they've lost their, their cognitive state just goes bluey. And they're now, in a, in a sense, in an unprepared emotional state. They've not been using that mechanism for a long time. And suddenly they're, they're sunk into it, and they, they will crash. That's not good either. And uh, so I think, I mean, is this a very positive view of the thing? Uh, but it's all part of the giant unplanned experiment. And I think, I'm just trying to think of what I was going to conclude with. I was supposed to say something positive. Um, anyway, psychedelics, yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> so when you, you can go to Brain Man, you can go get acupuncture from the beams, you can, uh, from the seams, uh, 
you can do a lot of things. And in psychedelic state, perhaps what you're doing is you're simply because you're, you're putting your entire self aside and, and allowing yourself to be filled with something else. And it may be this, the use of psychedelics may be the most powerful antidote to this growing critical problem for, for primates on the primate brain. So perhaps, uh, you know, if there is some kind of, uh, you know, where does society go from here? What if, what if three quarters of the American population is emotionally neutral and they're driving, 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 and uh, there's a breakdown? Well, maybe one of the solutions is the kinds of things that, say, the Shulgans are evolving, the Pioneer, or you guys are evolving. Maybe that's the only way back from this abyss. Uh, so, just just another kind of another kind of perspective uh, on 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 the overall mind states of the entire planet right now. That's why it's so nice to come to Mexico because fewer people are in this in this state. So why don't we open it up to questions, comments, criticisms? I guess my comment is that. Um as a psychedelic user and as uh, someone who's involved in certain communities that are smaller, uh, I find it more difficult still to relate, and even more difficult because I've been psychedelic or because I've, I've joined up with these communities, more difficult to relate to that three quarters of the general population that's still within this mind state of disassociation. And I'm wondering how Burning Man or something like the Tribal or something like the mind states, I mean, I think that's why I'm here, and I'm wondering how the people can relate to this. Is, is how is this essentially helping us? Because what it's doing is it's creating these small, semi-urban or quasi-urban tribes, which allow us to kind of express ourselves under these small micro kind of environments, but really still hyper-disassociate ourselves from you know the rest of society. And although that may be healthy, I don't I don't want to necessarily be integrated into reality TV. <laughs> I mean, at least for myself, and I can't speak for everybody else here, is that you know I was hoping that psychedelics would help me integrate better into a larger sense of society that I could communicate with more people instead of fewer people. And, and, and as, as much as I'd like to embrace my freedom, um, I think that part of embracing that is, is, is also to disassociate yourself with a, a, great, a greater sense. And I, and, I, and I feel like that's the great danger here. That's the great danger of things like Burning Man or Moon Tribe or, or Mind States. And, and as much as I love all of it and love all of you, uh, you know, it, it presents a danger for us if we can become really inclusive and um, insular, excuse me. about this whole thing is that there's going to be some huge crisis in the next decades and a lot of people are going to be dumped into a very confused and you know the, the old models will be discredited and people will be really hurting and I think that if you guys can build yourselves up and the loving energy that you have and the insights that you have and get ready to help some of the, some people because we're all going to hit the wall but the people who are caught, who are in the state of wired into all that media and all that cognitive dissonance are gonna the plunge for them is gonna be very far. And I think I think it's just it may not happen in our lifetimes, but it might. I'm concerned about uh, competition among primates. Project yourself back, let's say, ten years ago, and let's say you were going to uh, enter the same field you did. But not, but but with current technology today, do you think you could you could compete and be successful without having to immerse yourself in all the email and interactive structure? Yeah, you know what I have this morning. You know, I have, have to tell you some guys something personally. I'm I'm the principal investigator on a giant proposal for NASA, and I wrote an email to these people. And I said to to our our prime. Well, it's Raytheon and people like that. And I said, guys, the reporting requirements are so brutal for this thing. You know, monthly, I mean, full cost accounting monthly reports. Okay, the whole thing. And we have two universities and two giant companies and 
three NASA centers that I've, in my exuberance, signed up for this proposal. And I said, this is going to kill me. And can somebody else lead this thing? <laughs> We'd be very happy to be a little supportive role, but I, even if I can find the best contract manager, and if any of you can do this, anybody know what GNA means? Raise their hand, please. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the, th the truth of the matter is I'm probably going to back out and I'm going to say I will sub to anybody but I don't want the responsibility that will kill me and and all you guys will get paid your salaries and I'll be a piece of jello at the end of this thing and I won't have painted a picture or you know, Gail won't be able to reach me at, at all because I'll be doing back-to-back -back reports every day um, and yes, we may go back to the moon, but I'll be probably dead from the process. So, so anyway, that, that's a decision you have to make, actually, is how much you take on. And the rest of the story is that Bruce has now disbanded his team of VR creators and is pursuing his PhD and the Evo Grid. In fact, in early August, Bruce and I plan to get together for some more brainstorming, and one of the things we plan on doing is to record another interview for the salon. And that will be when we'll get an update on what Bruce is currently focusing on, namely the Evo Grid. But since the talk we just heard got shortened uh, due to my cutting out the bits where he had shown a couple of videos, I thought I would slip in a little bit of a conversation that Bruce and I had back in 2006. I'm only going to play a little bit of this late-night conversation, but I think that a few of the things that Bruce was talking about are even more relevant today. And keep in mind that when this conversation took place, little Georgie Bush was still in the White House, which brings me back to my mother's mantra that everything has changed, but nothing is different. And now I'd like to invite you to join Bruce and me for a little late-night discussion. strategizing because because people even if people aren't really paying close attention I think people are sensing something coming in the, the form of a correction of some kind do you see different strategies for people in different age groups or is there a, a, a generic overview that people need to be thinking of well I I think that every time I go to Costco or Trader Joe's and I get all these lovely products and I come back and everything and I, I think I just have this deep sense that this can't go on. One, it, it, it that it's such a, an, it's a gift. It's a tremendous thing. Enjoy it. It's like this is tremendous. That all these products come and they're perfect and they're priced well. And you know how could can we conceive of a, a planet, you know, 50 years like this? And it, it's really hard to say where the correction will come, but. Um, a correction can come in many ways, and I think the the correction's already the correction's already happening, and the correction is happening. The initial cracks are psychological. It's the it's 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 the stand on Zanzibar book cover that you see from 1968, where all those people are in those little cubby holes mm -hmm. in their own little world of this is my reality, and I'm afraid of that next cubby hole that person is. And there's seven billion people crowded on the planet, and there'll be more soon. But it's it's these realities where everything becomes cultish. You know, every group is lives in an existing cult, and they could they don't even have to be in Jonestown, and and next to the poison Kool Aid, they just have to be ne next to their media stream that, that reinforces their memetics for that mm. cult belief, and gradually going crazy. They don't have to be in the, in the mansion. You know, in the Heaven's Gate Mansion, they don't have to be there. They can be anywhere and be in that cult. And whether they're extreme Islam or extreme Christian Christianity, or fearful, you know, left-wing liberals who are often even the most extreme and radical of, of all of them, <laughs> and harder to work with and deal with because they there's there's no fun and no humor in them. Uh, they're apocalyptic. You know, not in not in the Christian sense, but the, the extreme left are the ultimate sort of harbingers of the apocalypse. 
but they don't have any common sense and they have no traditions to fall back on you know apocalypse right. management traditions <laughs> so um, so so in a sense it's the, the 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 correction the preconditions for the correction are the slow madness of the population especially in the United States it's way ahead of this game if you went if you went to southern Italy into a little town on the coast you wouldn't find this kind of madness you find a little bit of it, but basically people living the way they were. But as soon as you go to the Anglo-Saxon countries, insane people. And when the Indians, when the Indians, uh, the native peoples, there was a comment by one of the chiefs in New England. I don't know who made it. Was they saw the French coming? They thought oh, they're kind of cool guys and Italian explorers. Oh, they're hi, how you doing? And then the Anglo-Saxons showed up. It was like they looked, They took one look at these people's faces and they thought big trouble big trouble with these people they are miserable they're never going to be satisfied with anything there's something wrong with these people mm. they just knew it like these are bad dudes and it's so is it the anglo-saxon brain but of course you have Beslan in moscow and the paranoia and the the, the, the it's the paranoia is sort of cultural so russian paranoia you know is intense but they they've always been in it but you, you have you have a European new the new European paranoia. How's the European madness factor now? The European madness factor in in 1939 was pretty intense, you know, and they they, they blew it out of themselves in six years, and decided they didn't want to go back there. But certainly Yugoslavia was an expression of that madness factor. Africa's always, you know, the land of genocide, and it was for five million years. And probably always will be, you know. But how is it doing in all these places? And yet, you know, when we went to Southeast Asia, you're you're sitting there in Singapore and you're looking out at all these beautiful glass towers, this perfect society that has beaten all the culture out of itself, and they know that. But you, one of the things you look out at, you look at Thailand, you look at Vietnam, which was you know the state Vietnam was in, and you say, wait a minute, we're watching the the Southeast Asian Games and they're in Hanoi. There's this brand new stadium there's a laser light show and all the countries from Southeast Asia are in Hanoi doing this high-tech their own local regional games except for Burma and you realize they've come a long way geez they've come a long way and then you go to Bangkok I went with my friend from the Peace Corps who lives there part of the year and he, he took us to the spot in Bangkok where the border where the end of Bangkok was in 1972 he says this is where Bangkok ended <laughs> Now we'll drive two mile, two hours to get to the current edge of Bangkok where I have funded an elementary school and I have a little apartment above the school. And this is how much Bangkok has grown. You know, it's eight, ten times the size that it was. And you see how, despite that, they've stayed ahead and they have cleaner water and better schools. And mm -hmm. the king basically has managed. He said, we need to improve a certain percentage a year in every category. We don't have to make big jumps. Mm -hmm. And, and that whole region, how much better off it is. So the positivity is, there's so many incredibly positive things all all ramping up at the same time as this kind of mania, at the same time as the consumption of all the resources and the transformation of the gas state of the atmosphere. You know, and getting ready for some really interesting climate that we haven't seen in a while. I mean, South, I read somewhere that you know, we worry about Katrina. Mm -hmm. But South Florida, like Tampa Bay and all those sorts of things, and the Okefenokee itself, carved by super hurricanes. Yeah. You know, that whole coastline. And you're looking at something with a 80-foot storm surge that is that is taking the top 40 feet of soil off. And it, it, the thing is channeling through South Florida, and it kind of runs out of steam, but that's the violence of it. So you're looking at a 230, 240-mile-an-hour hurricanes. And those... Those are those are old. Those are fifteen thousand years ago or eight thousand years ago, but but we've had a nice calm weather period for a long mm -hmm. time, and, and we think Katrina's bad. <laughs> and, it's just a harbinger of things to come. Yeah, and when you put that much energy more into the atmosphere and you shift things around, and and we, it's almost like the party is over. Mm -hmm. You know, here's all your fossil fuels, burn them up. You know, here's a nice stable climate period. 
And maybe maybe our CO2 emissions are preventing another cooling period. But, you know, here's, here's optimal everything. You know, we'll give you everything. Plant will give you everything it's got. All the forests and all the, you know, it'll allow you to in genetically engineer all your crops and produce the green revolution in the 70s, which prevented mass starvation. You know, and, but it's, it's all of this stuff at once where women have fewer kids, so the population growth rate is slowing. That's a good sign. You know, but China's burning billions of tons of, of coal in the atmosphere. That's a bad sign. <laughs> so all of this, and then you have the Internet, you have open flows of communication. Good sign. The Internet carries manic, crazy, par uh, paranoid belief systems to local groups that become radicalized. That's a bad sign. <laughs> so it's like everything. So what what is the correction? I think the correction is an intensification of all those things at once to some kind of a, of a breaking point or a series of breaking points or a breaking point that triggers a mass uh, psychological effect. So, you know, that's a, a very common theme, theme in science fiction. So if you explore this, you know, what could make people sort of go bonkers and do mm -hmm. bad things? Um, Nazi Germany was a good example. You know, people, a, a system was manipulated, a, a paranoid population, a fearful population who had good reason to be afraid, manipulated them into doing really, you know, very rapidly, right. doing an incredible, amazing job of producing a lot of material and getting a booming economy going and getting a military class rebuilt at the same time, strategically, and then creating a pogrom and, and creating a kind of uh, blind following of a leadership that was going to take you right over the precipice. Right. And and I don't think that'll ever happen in the U.S. because the U.S. is is so diverse. You know, you'll have Santa Cruz will break off and, you know, it's so diverse. But I think that um, in a sense that the... the it's hard to really see the correction. If it's an asteroid strike, I mean, that's sort of an easy one. If it's a, if it's just gradually being... The correction probably is we find it harder decade after decade to produce enough food, or we, we just find things just don't work as well. Mm -hmm. Things just start to break apart. Well, the infrastructure is already starting to crumble in many places in this country. Right, although, um, on the other hand, they're building all new infrastructure. But I think we, we come to the point where, gee, that those wonderful years of, of, of stable energy prices, which we're really dependent on, now we have these huge surges and drops. We have, say, the Saudi oil production wiped out by insurgency. Suddenly there's a massive economic chaos. So we have economic chaoses that the world experienced in the past that we haven't for a while. And... and the former Soviet Union was an example of maybe what can happen when an entire system breaks down. You go to the former Soviet Union and you find guarded compounds with wealthy people in them and incredibly crumbled infrastructure in a lot of places and a falling down, but you have a rising up at the same time. Or South Africa, where you have high-tech booming economy in some sectors and the other sectors it's massive corruption and a breaking down of the idea of government. And they're all competing for each other. Like, can can you win before we win the other way? Or can, it's almost like, can we win against a global pandemic, bird flu, before it comes for us? And so I, I almost see like there are these two, two forces coming up together, like hands coming together, and one of them's getting a little bit ahead, and one of them, and, and you get higher and higher and higher, and you have a, a smaller uh, margin for error. Everything now is very high up, and the stakes are very, very high up. So a slight pushing to one side or another, and, and something breaks apart. But it's, it's very hard to see where it'll come from. But the, uh, the, the psychology of people to deal with a crisis, that's the real thing. Do you have level-headed, objective-thinking people like, for instance, if you had in the abstract, if you had an asteroid coming in, 500 or 200 mile or 20 mile across, none of the people who are currently in government or currently probably running agencies of any kind are suitable for dealing with that crisis. 
and ultimately they, you, but of course they won't relinquish their jobs, right. uh, but they're not suitable. You need an utterly different kind of person to, to get that job done. You know, and it, 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 so if any crisis arises, you have the wrong people, probably, because the things that put them there and, and the constituencies that wanted them there uh, create a person that's incapable of handling a real crisis. And so you're never going to be able to say, gee, okay, we've got a real job to do now, step aside, we're going to find the best people in society. It won't happen, so the crisis won't get handled. So it'll be, if it's a asteroid strike, which it probably won't be, but if it was a medical, you know, a pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, it will, the system will fail us, our leadership will fail us, it's like Katrina, but on a large scale, mm -hmm. and I think that's where you have the correction, because nature gives you a certain amount of time to react. Say if it's a pandemic, you have weeks to really do it the right way. You didn't react. The stakes are already very high, and you just lost a third of your population. And now there's no one to maintain highways anymore, because it killed right. just a third of the maintenance guys, and they, they count for more than you do. <clears throat> they kept the sewers running. So it really is going to come down to leadership. <clears throat> the second aspect is if you have a radicalized population that's very paranoid, they can be led, they can be misled right. very easily. Right. And so in that circumstance, and this is what happened in Nazi Germany, a radicalized population, guy can step right into that and then truly create damage. So I think in a sense that the correction may come from you know, this utter failure of leadership to respond to crisis because they can't, and then instead of instead of drawing in a strong, powerful leader that is also fair and whatnot, get you through it, you you get failure, failure of the system, and then the radical, true radical step. And George Bush and company are not these people; they're not the true dangerous people. Those people are yet to come. They're 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 maybe kids right now or they're in their teens, but that the truly dangerous individuals are out there. And one of the things, in a subsequent podcast, I can tell you more about uh, how you deal with those kinds of people, because it's been something that I've made a practice of trying to sense those people's presence. Because people who are have truly caught the whole, they've caught the energy thing, that they their, uh, their charisma, is, we talk about Terence McKenna's charisma and those other people, where they've taken charisma and they've turned it, you know, not to, you know, artistic means or whatever other means, they've turned it into true manipulation, true psychotic manipulation. You know those people when they're in your presence. And I've got this kind of empathic sense in me that I can pick them up. And I, they, I can't keep them out, so they come whatever they have comes in, even if they don't notice I'm there. And I've noticed that, that these these types of individuals. And so you've got to know who these people are for real. I was going to say, that, that sounds like part of the strategy is, is being careful who you listen to and, and really evaluating what, what your leaders are saying and, and make your own decisions, yeah. don't be swayed. Yeah, and if, if you don't, if you want a future, you have to take charge of your own thoughts. And if you're having thoughts about, you know, I hate these people or I'm afraid of that, and other people, you would, wouldn't you, would you think that, if, would you want everyone in the world, including the people who are actually running your sewer system, or people who are running your local government to have the same thought in their head? You'd say, no, I don't want people to be having the thoughts like I do. It would be terrible. Nothing would get it would be terrible if everybody was in the state of mind I'm in. Nothing would get done. And you don't you don't want that. But yet, maybe other people are in that state of mind. What are they going to do? People with positions of influence having that kind of state of mind that you have? Well, that's, that's the advice. Take charge of your own thoughts. Because uh, yeah. you, you can sort through your own, own thoughts if you really put the effort in. It's almost like when you're in an airplane and you're... The next passenger over from you is drunk and asleep. And there's a person there who's all frantic about some business deal. And it's like a microcosm of humanity. In a big jumbo jet, you're flying across the Pacific. And everybody hopes and believes 
of the pilot and the co-pilot are there. They're sensible. They're reasonable and rational. Not like those two guys. Not like every other passenger. Yeah. And even the even the service staff are like, someone's pissed off at somebody, and it's like this crazy mad thing going on. And then there's two sensible people talking, but you you think that the pilot, they're not having crazy thoughts, or they're not drinking, or they're not, you know, and and you hope, but do you? How can you completely expect that? Right. And in the, if if all of the passengers are, are nuts, maybe some of the pilots are going to be nuts. I mean, how can they insulate them? Who's who's insulating them and protecting them? So if there are leadership, you know, who who's watching over the leadership to say, we don't want people who are nuts and on, on in any way it, to be our leaders. No one's watching over that. People are just. If everybody's nuts, they're going to put nuts into leadership. Yeah. And then the aircraft, the whole aircraft, it's coming, coming down no, somewhere. Coming down. So yeah, it's you know, in the well, in the first online community, the the phrase was, "You own your own words." If you type something and put it, in, you own it, and it goes out to people and it hurts somebody or whatever, you own it, and and you really own your own thoughts too, because every thought you have that is unpleasant or whatever. Or untrusting or fearful goes into the ether and becomes part of the whole picture. You become what you think about. You become what you think about. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, we'll leave it there. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And I guess I should say once again that it's been about three years since that conversation took place, and so... Maybe we'll pick back up on some of these topics this summer when we record another late-night talkabout. Again, I'm going to have to cut my own remarks a bit short today, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, but first there are a couple of other quick things that I'd like to mention. One is the fact that uh, while many of our fellow saloners lament the fact that they feel as if they're all alone out there at the far edges of the tribe, It doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of psychedelic people nearby. You just haven't found them yet. And keep in mind the wording here. As Terence often said, find the others, which implies that it is up to you to find the others. You can't wait for them to find you. Now, I don't have any better ideas about how to go about doing that than you might have, but just to give you an idea of what I would consider an out-of-the-way place to find the others came in a brief note that I received on Facebook. It was from Carl S. and read, Hey, Lorenzo. I love the Psychedelic Salon. It's my favorite podcast to listen to on my bike ride to work here in Shanghai, China. Keep up the good work. So, let's face it. If there is a psychonaut in Shanghai, there's got to be one in your neck of the woods, too. On another note, you'll probably recall that in my last podcast, I mentioned that Arrowwood is trying to raise the funds necessary to scan more than a dozen boxes of documents from the Myron Stoloroff archive. So far, that effort has received a little over $100 from a couple of our fellow saloners, and on behalf of the Stoloroffs, I want to thank you. In fact, I'm going to uh, make a quick run up to Lone Pine to see Myron and Jean this weekend, and I'll report back to you about that visit in my next podcast. Which reminds me that uh, I need to let you know about my schedule for the next uh, few weeks. As you know, I'm in the final stages of uh, recording my new novel as an audio book. And to be honest, that project is uh, considerably more time-consuming than I anticipated. But uh, hey, it's always that way, isn't it? Anyway, I'm uh, going to have to cut back for a couple of weeks on doing these podcasts. So my next program will come out on June 3rd, and that will be followed on June 10th with my fourth anniversary podcast. Yep, that's right. It will have been four years since uh, you and I first started getting together here in the salon. And for my June 10th podcast, I'm going to play the first chapter of my novel. Hopefully, I'll also have the rest of the book recorded and available for purchase online. But the first chapter is already complete, uh, recorded, edited, and even if the rest of the book isn't quite ready yet, I'll definitely podcast that first chapter on that day. My idea, of course, is that if the first chapter doesn't grab you enough to spend $12 to hear the rest of it, well, you just saved yourself a few bucks. 
It's uh, sort of my version of try before you buy. And once I've got that project tied up, I'll be back on the forums. Right now, I only have time to visit the growreport.com forums a couple of times a week and then mainly as a lurker. But I plan on getting back in the loop soon, and the same goes for Facebook, email, and the phone. I can't even allow myself to think about how many little things are slipping through the cracks right now while I'm in this writing vortex. But I'll eventually get back to the default world, so please don't give up on me. But even if you aren't hearing back from me, uh, I want you to know that I truly appreciate the cards, emails, and music you've been sending. I do read them and listen to the music, which is excellent, by the way. So, until the 3rd of June, I hope you are able to ease into the summer months or the winter months for BB, Hermit Girl, and the rest of our fellow slaughters down under. We are uh, living in some interesting and exciting times, and I hope that all of the interest and excitement in your life is all positive and fun. Well, that's it for today, and so I'll close by reminding you that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects uh, under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any uh, questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. (laughs) 